If you would, I know y'all aren't going to like this, but stand back up, grab your Bibles, and um, let's turn together to Exodus chapter 20. Um, and we're going to be, uh, we've been here for several weeks now, and we're going to just continue right where we're at. And uh, if, if you don't have a Bible, uh, we've provided one for you. It's in the, in the seat in front of you. And in those Bibles, we're going to be on page 35 this morning. And so if you'd find that, you can read along with us. Hey, if you don't have a Bible, would you just take that one home with you? That's our gift to you. We want you to have the Bible in your home. Um, the, the Jesus said that my words are spirit and they are life. Have anybody found that to be true this morning? So we want you to have God's word with you. So go ahead and take that if you don't have one. So we're in Exodus chapter 20, as I said, have been for several weeks. Got a couple more weeks to go. And um, we're going to read beginning at verse 1 this morning. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day, it's a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. Thank you, Lord, for the reading of your word. You may be seated. When you consider the last two commandments that we've discussed at this point, you shall not kill, you shall not commit adultery, it's easy to see that these commandments constitute a basic morality. We're talking lowest common denominator. A basic morality that's essential for societal order. Generally, people from all across the political spectrum, from every socioeconomic starting point and every ethnic origin agrees with this. And I admit, we talked about this already in those last two messages, it's true that some people occupy the outer fringes of this assumption. For example, serial killers don't really embrace you shall not kill. That should be obvious. Pornographers don't embrace you shall not commit adultery. And others might justify just certain varieties of these offenses, like people involved in extramarital affairs or abortion providers, things like that. But nevertheless, I stand by what I said, that almost all people believe, in theory at least, that we should not kill other people. And, and that we should be at least reasonably faithful sexually, not just taking any partner any time whenever the urge 
strikes us. But interestingly, what I want you to see this morning is that when it comes to the Eighth Commandment, you shall not steal, it seems many more people are guilty of that crime than murder or adultery. And yet, worse yet, while many people casually steal without a second thought, those who do that may find it unusually easy to justify their theft. Now, of course, I'm not talking here about people who are going to commit a bank heist or knock over a liquor store. That's not what I'm talking about. But I'm talking about the small, careless, and subtle thefts that occur in many places in many different ways all around us all the time. Just for example, how many of you have ever been in the grocery store and either done or seen done? Somebody walked through the produce section and grabbed one, two, three, a handful of grapes and didn't pay for them. And if you were to and they just devour them right there, and if you were to protest, if you were to say, hey, 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 hold on just a second, you can't do that, they would respond to you, oh, come on, it's just a grape. But the Eighth Commandment, however, doesn't just prohibit stealing big things. That's your cue. It doesn't just prohibit stealing big things, but it prohibits taking anything that is not mine in general. That's the idea. Some people will take office supplies home from their workplace or they'll print personal documents while at work and they justify it by the fact that, come on, it's a, it's a post-it notepad. No one's going to miss this. Or they say, come on, I'm paid so little that I obviously deserve this little perk. Some people have such a hatred and mistrust for the federal government that They have no problem whatsoever with small but questionable deductions every year at tax time because they say, hey, I'm going to save some money by sticking it to the man. You see, this problem of theft is wide-ranging from home burglaries and armed robberies to the seemingly petty rather, but constant trickle of small-time stealing by average Joes. Theft is a bigger problem than you might have previously imagined a big deal. Some of you might have seen this news story this week. In Atlanta, uh, this armored car is flying down the highway. The door flies open. And and when the door flies open, uh, how that happened, I don't know. But the door flies open and immediately almost $175,000 spills out onto the highway. Amateur video. Yeah, exactly. Amateur video shows 15 cars pulled to the side of the cash-covered road, and their driver's out grabbing as quickly as possible as much cash as possible. And yet in that crowd of 15 drivers, not one of them seemed to go pick up this wad of cash and go, I wonder who this belongs to. Instead, they said, I wonder how much more I can get. You shall not steal was an absolutely revolutionary thought. It's a revolutionary idea for the Israelites that came out of Egypt. You see, the ancient world, the governing principle of the ancient world was might makes right. That was the mentality. And the idea was where stronger, conquering nations would take everything that belonged to another weaker nation and they would kill or enslave its people. And even if you were fortunate enough, 
to be a native of the stronger nation without even a thought, the king could still demand your crops, your labor, your land, your children to fight in his wars. The idea of private property just did not exist in the ancient world. But when, when Israel came out of Egypt, they were delivered from their slavery, and they came to Mount Sinai, one of the ten governing commandments handed down to them at that mountain was, do not steal. And this law not only applied to them in their dealings with each other as individuals and as tribes, but they were even to treat the resident aliens and the foreigners that lived among them in their camps with the same respect. Look at Leviticus 19.33. It says, when a, so, when a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall, do him, you shall not do him wrong. Hmm. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Theft was so detestable among ancient Israelites that the law carried steep penalties and restitutions that were required for those condemned of it. In some cases, a man could be obligated to pay back as much as five times what he had stolen. In the book of Proverbs, it actually mentions how even petty thefts required sevenfold restitution. Steal a hundred bucks, you're paying 700 back. All of this demonstrated at the foundational level, God's approval of the concept of private property. The idea was that what someone earned or built or produced should be regarded as belonging to them. Again, the book of Proverbs kind of affirms this because it's chock full about promises about the material blessings that diligence provides. Diligent hands and, and diligent labor will provide you know, material blessings for the person that engages in it. So, for example, Proverbs 13.4 says the soul of the sluggard, the lazy guy, the soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. So God is saying in the Eighth Commandment that a person has certain rights over his possessions that must not be violated by the selfishness, by the greed or by the laziness of someone else. And this has ramifications not only for blatant bank-robbing criminals, but for the whole of any society that would desire to be fundamentally just. In his commentary on the Eighth Commandment, John Gill, who was an 18th century Baptist uh, Bible commentator and pastor, he says that theft is defined, uh, defined as taking away another man's property by force or by fraud, without the knowledge and against the will of the owner thereof. But he also notes in his, in his commentary that it includes things like overcharging your customers or cheating in your business dealings or not paying your debts or withholding someone's wages or charging exorbitant interest or neglecting to care for the things that you borrowed or the things that were entrusted to you or or even benefiting from the theft of another. If everyone subscribed to the highest form of this ideal, think about this for a minute, what kind of impact would that have on the American economy? 
What kind of impact would that have? It would be absolutely and overnight revolutionized. Think about the impact of this kind of thinking on banking. Think about the impact on the loan and the insurance industries. Think about the way that the government taxes its citizens. Now, I want to be real clear here. The government, in the case of the government, it's not to say that what I just said is not to say that the government should not tax its citizens. In fact, Jesus made, the, made it clear that they had the right to do so when he commanded us in Matthew 22 to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. There is a portion that is right for us to pay taxes. In fact, some of you that, that love to talk about tithing in the Old Testament, the tithe was way more of a tax than a free bill offering. It was required. It was something that you did to support the nation and the, and the worship of the temple. But governments, if they're going to tax, should tax the people fairly and not place a majority of the burden on a minority of the people. And they also should not have welfare policies that encourage laziness and irresponsible living because guess what? This too is theft. The communism of the 20th century is a great example of government doing these kinds of crimes. It was a prime example. The government confiscated all the means of production and they stripped people of their fundamental God-given right to ownership and that was theft for the government to do that. But by far, when we talk about different elements of theft, petty theft and you know governmental theft and all that, the highest form of stealing that any one of us or anyone else can be engaged in is when a person willfully robs God. Can you imagine that that's even possible? But this is what we read in the book of Malachi. So in the book of Malachi, if you've never read it, it's an Old Testament minor prophet and and God is confronting the people about a bunch of their their sins and it comes to chapter 8 chapter 3 rather in verse 8 he says will a, this is God speaking he says will a man rob God and then he delivers his his uh, allegation he says yet you are robbing me but you say how how have we robbed you and he answers in your tithes and your contributions or your offerings he says you are this is God's sentence you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Then he gives the solution. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you, and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Wow, what an incredible promise that is. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil. And your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Now, I want to say something, and maybe to some of you kind of an elephant in the room, but sadly, my perspective as a pastor is not that... You know, I should hold a verse like this over your head and beat you over the head with it. In fact, I would go so far as to say that this verse has been more used in the last two, three, four hundred years, however long, to manipulate people and to hurt them 
in churches for years. Why would I say that? Because out of context, this verse places a heavy old covenant burden to on people and, and it straps it to them. And, and the, the goal is oftentimes no more noble than just to elicit a little bit more financial giving, make them feel bad, twist their arm behind their back, make them say, uncle, they don't want to be under a curse, so they're going to give more. But I want to say something to you, and I want to say it boldly, and I'm not going to apologize to it. If you're here this morning and you struggle with giving, it's really hard for you to just be generous. I want to say that you may read this word, these words with fear that right now you're under a curse. But I want to assure you that our bad habits and our wrong attitudes, our wrong thinking are rarely ever fixed or rarely ever changed because of our fear. Y'all are quiet. It rarely does anything for me just to be afraid to, to motivate me to do anything that's good for me to do. See, we're not ever taught that we're transformed in the gospel by fear. The Bible says, in fact, that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind. So how are we changed? Listen to me carefully. For the rest of your life, since you became a believer in Jesus Christ, you are only transformed by hoping in Jesus Christ. When you say, all my eggs are in the Jesus basket, you're on your way to change. That's how you change. You don't do it by saying, oh, I've got I to write a big fat check because God's going to squash me with a curse if I don't. No! What I'm saying is, you turn to Jesus and you say, I put all of my hope in you. I don't put my hope in my money, in my obedience. I don't put my hope in any of that. I put my hope in you, Jesus. More importantly, and I, I love telling you this because it's the gospel. Remember that if you've put your trust in Christ, you are not under any curse. Not at all. Because the Bible says this, Galatians 3.13, one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible. It says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Well, which one? The whole one. The laws, the law is filled with curses. Read Deuteronomy chapter 28. It says, if you do this, if you obey, you'll be blessed. And then it has about two thirds more information at the end of the chapter. It says, but if you do this, you'll be cursed. If you don't do this, you'll be cursed. But the Bible says that Jesus, when he was hung on the cross, he became that curse for us. All of the impact of all of that terrible stuff that we were under that curse fell on him and not us. Praise God. He became a curse for us. So your faithfulness in giving, your faithlessness rather, in giving, it doesn't mean that you're under a curse because of one simple reason. Because of the effective work of Jesus on the cross that has broken every curse that would ever be applied to you. But what it does mean, it doesn't remove the fact that in your action, in your faithless action, you are still robbing God. You're still robbing God. And you're doing that with fearless, or fearful rather, fearful, faithless lack of generosity. That's how you're robbing Him. It, it may not result in you being under some old covenant curse, but it is clearly, please hear me of this. 
that doesn't mean you can just blow it off because you're not under a curse. Because the Bible says that we are constantly to confess our sins to Christ so that he can be faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. It's still a sin that we need to repent from if we're under that bondage of, of stinginess and greed and all of that stuff. It's a sin that we need to repent of. Second Corinthians says that God loves a cheerful giver. Not a begrudging giver. Not a, I got to do this so I won't be under a curse. It says he loves a cheerful giver. And that, and that we shouldn't have to give reluctantly or under compulsion. That means we don't have to beat anybody with a whip to be generous in the kingdom. This, this should tell us that the first step of repentance, if you're not a giver, the first step of repentance is realizing that giving, I want you to hear this for me because you may have never heard it in another church. The first step of repentance is realizing that giving is not your duty. It is your joy. There is a release of power and joy and satisfaction that I cannot fully explain to you when you decide that you're going to be a giver. It's a huge release for you. The burden will roll off of you. When you're not a giver, you think, am I ever going to have enough? When you are a giver, it's because you realize that through Jesus Christ, you already have enough. While the curse of Malachi 3, I want you to hear this. While the curse of Malachi 3 died with Jesus on the cross, the promise of Malachi 3 is alive and well today. Because of Jesus, all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ, the New Testament says. Let's read that promise again. Put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down a blessing, pour, pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Is anybody in here want to live in an area where there's no more need? Man, I want that for my life. And God has, if I can say it this way, the audacity to say, test me. Check me out. See if I'm telling you the truth. I also remember in the word, reading in the Word that God is not a man that he should lie. If he says there'll be no more need, there will be no more need. He's not done. I will rebuke the devourer for you. Some of you are saying, man, I, I make money, I put it in my pocket, it falls right out. I put it in the bank, it's just gone. Bills come in, I don't, I don't ever have enough. But he says, I'll rebuke the devourer for, your, for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and the, your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. What a promise is that? See, giving to get something if you have heard some TV preacher and he says, hey, if you'll sow this faith seed, however, whatever language they use, and, and you give to give something because you think you've figured out the blessing formula, if that's how you give, let me tell you something, you're in for disappointment because giving that way, it's only just a mask for your ugly, sinful greed. That's all it is. You can dress it up with all kinds of spiritual language. That's all it is. Especially if all you're hoping to get are more material comforts, more easy living. But giving, listen to me. I want to make sure you guys really hear this. I know I keep pausing to say that, but I want your attention this morning. Giving because you love Jesus. And because you know that he loves you. 
And because you trust completely in the goodness and the provision of God, giving that way is a beautiful thing. It is a lovely, transformative, awesome thing. So over the last couple of weeks, well, actually several weeks since we started this series, we've been asking why questions. What I mean by that is we've asked questions of all those previous seven commandments. We said, why? What what does this mean? What does obeying this commandment, you shall not steal, mean for new covenant, Jesus following, grace not law, 21st century disciples of Jesus? What does it mean? Two things. Take careful note of these two things. This is what do not steal means to you as a believer. Number one, it means that we're acknowledging that God is really the owner of everything. The second thing is that he alone is the one who supplies all of our needs so that we never need to fear lacking anything. David said in the Psalms, I have been young and now I'm old, but I have never seen the righteous forsaken or their children begging for bread. That's a great promise. While it's true (laughs) that I said earlier that personal property and private ownership was God's idea in the first place, we have to realize that every bit of ownership that I think I have, every bit of it, is only a temporary stewardship at the very best. And someday it's going to come crashing to an end. The old adage is absolutely true and remains true. You cannot take it with you. At that point, when you're Lungs stop taking air when your heart uh, ceases to to beat. Guess what? When all that happens, your, your deed to ownership ends. It's over. Psalms 89.11 makes this idea of ownership so abundantly clear. 89.11, the heavens are yours. I heard uh, my son say one time that God does not calculate his wealth in dollars. He calculates it in galaxies. The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world, now watch this phrase, no matter how proud you are of what you've accumulated, the world and all that is in it belongs to who? To God. It doesn't belong to me. I may be a steward of it. I may have been blessed with it. But it is, ultimately it is God's. And it says, it says, all that's in it is yours, you have founded them. This psalm says that the ultimate right of ownership of everything that exists stops with God on the simple basis that he was the creator and the founder of all that exists. So all of our ownership in any lasting sense is merely a dream. It's merely an illusion. To remove all doubt, I started looking at this concept in Scripture this week of God's ownership. And to remove all doubt, there's various other Scriptures scattered throughout the Bible that declare that, that, for example, the land is His. Well, I just bought a bunch of property. Well, enjoy it while you can, because the land is his. Well, I'm going to buy a houseboat and live on the ocean. Well, guess what? That sea, it's his, the Bible says. The peaks of the mountains are his, the Bible says. Even the beasts of the forest and everything that moves in the field is his. Words straight out of the Bible. But hold on. Well, what about all that gold and silver that we're always constantly chasing and pursuing? Haggai 2.8 says, the silver is mine. 
and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. So have you been keeping a careful tally about what you own versus what God owns? Everybody got a good, good mental grasp on that? Jesus told a parable, you may recall, about a rich man who had a bumper crop one year. And so what he did, he said, what am I going to do with all this? So he decided to build, tear down his old barns, build bigger barns, and he was going to sock it away so that he could retire early, kick back, and enjoy the good life. But that very night in this parable that, God, that Jesus, the Son of God, is telling, that very night God calls him a fool and demands his life as payment from him immediately. And God hands down this sentence with a question. And he says, these things you have prepared, whose will they be? Yeah, see, I can write a will. And I can dispose of my earthly property. But at some point, I can get passed down generations. But at some point, who's it going to be? I don't have a whole lot to say over that. You realize that? I can leave a a huge load of wealth to my kids. Don't get excited, Cameron. Um, I I can leave a huge load of wealth to my kids. But there's no guarantee what my kids are going to do with it. Amen? There's no guarantee. You cannot take it with you. It belongs to God. And Jesus tells this story and he wraps it up with these words. So is the one, he's saying, like this man, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Did you know that Jesus talked more about money in Scripture. This is true. You can look it up. Talked more about money in Scripture than heaven or hell. Did you know that? Absolutely the truth. Why? Because there's not one of us who has not bent our knee and bowed to the idol of money. This is true. If there's one thing that are going to, it's going to put more people in hell, it's the pursuit of and the love of and the, undi- the uh, uh, inordinate idolatry of money. Pro- I promise you that. So a day is coming, as I've said over and over, when all of the resources we've been given will be returned to their ultimate owner. So if that's really true, now just wrap your brain around that. That's true. It's all going back. If that's true, and I assure you the scripture says it is, what should you and I be doing right now with all the stuff we've been given? What should we do? How do we... How do we handle that if we know that it's just a temporary assignment from God? Jesus addressed this in Matthew 6. He said, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But watch, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in to steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So Jesus is saying, look, let me, let me level with you. You can continue to feed the illusion of ownership that you've amassed something for yourself or even for your children. You can, you can continue in that illusion or Jesus offers a much better option. 
you can in this life with earthly resources become a wise investor in eternal things. My money's on Jesus' financial planning. If God is the owner of everything, and I hope you agree that he is, but if he's the owner of everything, what sense does it make for me to cheat and steal to get more? I have to be content with what the owner of it all gives me. And, and before you think, well, that means I'm going to be poor and some monk walking around in the, on my knees in the ashes, listen to me. The scriptures teach that it's God's great delight to give what his children need. Y'all all know Psalm 23. It starts out like this. What a declaration. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. You know what that's saying? It's saying that me being a stupid sheep, because sheep are absolutely the most stupid animals God ever created, I have a very good shepherd who leads me beside still waters and he takes me to green pastures where I can lie down. He feeds me. Even sometimes when I go through the valley of the shadow of death, guess what? I don't have to fear an evil. You know why? Because he's right there with me. His rod and his staff, they comfort me. And he, he prepares a table for me in the very presence of my enemies. What a promise. And if you remember... He says, I'm going to dwell in the house of the Lord all days of my life. And he ends that, that, that psalm by saying, surely goodness and surely mercy are going to follow me all the days of my life. Why? Because I've got it all figured out and I'm good and I'm righteous and all that. No, because I have a good shepherd that leads me right where I need to go and takes care of everything that I need. So theft, whether it's of another person or of God himself, whether it's a blatant criminal act or theft of the more socially acceptable variety that I mentioned earlier, it's a declaration. Listen, your theft is a declaration that I do not trust God to give me everything that I need and nothing that I don't. That's what you're saying when you're grasping and clawing and trying to get more and, and stuff more into your pockets and you're along the roadside in Atlanta trying to get more and get out of there before anyone can notice. All you're saying is I don't trust God to give me everything I need and nothing I don't. And I'm not trying to be harsh or cruel because I've been there many times myself, but I am asking you as a brother to a brother or a sister, how can you call that faith? James 1.16, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. It's a great way to start. I've heard people quote the next verse a lot, but sometimes they neglect to leave on this, don't be deceived. Why do you say that? Because it's so easy to be deceived on this point. Don't be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Until we realize that God is the fountain of every blessing, big blessings, small blessings, our fallen instinct will be to steal, to cheat, to manipulate, to take advantage of other people. We will rot in our stinginess and we'll become uh, you know, our, our hoarding and our grabbing and we'll become dry and we'll become lifeless. 
Some of you have heard this illustration before, but do you know why the Dead Sea in southern Israel is dead? Do you know? It's because water only flows into the Dead Sea. And because none of it ever flows out, the the sea itself stockpiles salt and other minerals, but it has no way, no outlet to release those back out. So nothing can live in its waters, nothing. And that's what you and I are like when we only take and we never give. And listen, I want you to be careful. I'm not going to take an offering when this is done, some official offering. I, I just want you to know, I'm not, when I talk about taking and only giving, I'm not even just talking about giving to the church or other ministries. I hope you do that, but that's not even what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is a life of holistic and joyful generosity, which should be the hallmark of every single person who claims to be a follower of Christ. Every one of us. This should affect the way that we give gifts to our friends and the way we leave tips for waiters. It should, it should affect the way we offer to help our friends and others in time of need and in the way we give to churches and charities and ministries, among all other things. Our lives should be marked by giving. One of the greatest stories from the early church's history, this is before the first 300 years of the church, is that there was a persecution uh, that was going on in the Roman Empire, and one of the uh, one of the uh, uh, generals was writing to the emperor at the time, and he said, and they, they, he asked if he could not persecute the church in his area. And he said, well, why? He said, because these people are amazing the way they give. Back then, you know, when when someone died, they would literally, oftentimes, just throw them on the side of the road, let them rot, just let them rot. And it caused all kinds of trouble and disease. But, but people in the church at that time were going through the city, finding all the dead bodies nobody else wanted anything to do with, and they were burying them. They were burying them. And so this general was so moved by that because no one else wanted to do it. No one else was going to do it. But it was a generosity. It was a giving. It had nothing to do with money, but it was a giving that marked that early church that got the attention of a pagan. What if we all said that we wanted to be the kind of givers that got the attention of every, every pagan in this city. How would that revolutionize the direction and the advance of the kingdom of God? It would be incredible. So giving's not just to the church. Giving's everywhere. In every situation. In every chance. In fact... People who think that they can only give to church, I, again, I'm, I'm honest with you every week, you should give to church, and we hope you do give to church. But if that's the only place to give, and, and, and even if you're faithful in giving to the church, but it's the only place you give, can I suggest to you your giving's way too small? It's way too small. So I'm describing this grand life this grand life that we should all aspire to. But I'm here to tell you right now that this kind of life is utterly impossible if you are not fully convinced that my God shall supply all of your needs, every single one of them, according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. That is the first thing you have to believe. You have to be crystal clear on A, who owns it, and B, where all the good stuff is coming from. 
You have to be crystal clear on that. My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Can anybody here be honest enough to raise your hand and say, I have needs, physical, financial, emotional, whatever. Can you raise your hand and just indicate that that might apply to you, most of you? Notice that when God talks about his supply, he says it's your need, but it's his riches. There is nothing more glorious in this life than when someone picks up one of your debts and takes care of it. It's awesome. It's awesome. And Jesus is saying to us, just leave the bill on the table. I've got this. I've got it. So like I said about the commandment last week, we can actually look at you shall not steal as a promise. Because we have a God who, though he owns everything, has promised not to withhold anything that we truly need. What a great deal that is. And that's where our confidence lies, not in what we can grab for ourselves. It's this alone that lets a man or a woman have peaceful days and restful nights, is the confidence that God is our supplier, he's our source, he is the the fountain of our provision. That's what gives us peace. (laughs) So, Here at Northridge Life, most weeks, sometimes we do it a little earlier in the service, but most weeks we end our service with taking communion. And what I've tried to do, because I believe that communion is such a beautiful picture of Christ, and I always want to leave you with a picture of Christ, I thought about this and I thought, okay, so I'm talking about stealing and I'm talking about giving and, and how we need to trust the Lord for provision, and I thought, what can I say to this congregation that I love so much to communicate how this, this bread, this cup apply to this. And I thought of one scripture almost immediately. Romans 8.32 says that he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Watch. He said God didn't even hold back his own son. Can you imagine how precious your own son or daughter is? He says, I didn't even spare my own son. And listen, uh, uh, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, watch, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Mm. Are you following me? The gift of Jesus, that bludgeoned, bloody image on the cross, screams to you, It screams to you that there is nothing that God won't provide for you. If he was willing to give the gift of his own son, you think he's going to let you starve? If if he was willing to give you the gift of his own son, do you think he's going to forget you in your time of sickness? No. 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 It's a pledge. The, 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 the body of Christ hanging on the cross is a pledge to you that God is going to provide, as we read in James, every good and perfect gift you could ever need. 
And can I let you in on, on one of the secrets of Christianity, one of the secrets of contentment? If you don't got it, you don't need it. God has determined, God has determined that, that what you need, what is for your good, and he has promised that he's going to give you everything for your need. So stop being graspy and greedy and selfish and manipulative and all those things. You can let all that go and trust that when you need it, there is no way God's going to deny it to you. But you've got to realize he's a whole lot better judge of what I need than I am. If, if God listened to me about everything I need, I'd be wearing nothing but Gucci and driving nothing but Ferrari. I promise you that. But God knows what I need. And I can tell you, after being a follower of his for over 30 years, he has never denied me a single thing that I need. And that is my testimony that I will live and die on. He has never denied me a single thing that I need. And that's the beauty of communion. That's the beauty of it because it says that, that my body, my mind, my emotions, my spirit was dead in sin. That it was, it was hopeless. It was broken beyond repair. I wasn't going to patch it up. I wasn't going to buy some self-improvement book and fix my way out of this. I was doomed. And the Bible says, looking at that broken mass of a man, that the Bible says that he was wounded for my transgressions. And he was bruised for my iniquity. And the chastisement, the beating that brought him peace, that brought me peace rather, was laid upon him. And then it says, by his stripes, I am healed. The Bible affirms and confirms that my sins were like scarlet and they had separated me from God so much that I was dead, Paul says, in my trespasses and sin. There was no pulse. The doctor had called it. I was dead. The certificate had been signed. I was dead. But the Bible says that when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, that the blood of Jesus was shed for us. And though our sins were like scarlet, a horrible, irreversible stain, because of the blood of Jesus, we were made white as snow. How? How can we imagine that, that the Father who gave His Son, who did not spare Him, but gave Him, spent Him for us, how can we imagine that he will not also with him graciously? And the key word is graciously because the root of that word is grace. How can we imagine that by his grace he will not freely give us all things? 1 Corinthians 11.23 Paul says to that church, he says, For I received from the Lord... But I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Lord, I thank you for the provision of your body. God, 
I can't ever do this with our congregation without remembering and being reminded that your brokenness equals my wholeness. The destruction of your flesh means the wholeness of my entire man, body, soul, and spirit. And I thank you for that, God. What a great... What a great gift you gave in the giving of your son. What a great pledge of your provision and your love for us as the people of God in the giving of your son. We thank you for that. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Jesus, I thank you that I'm not under an old covenant of a curse, Lord God. I thank you that though I have many, many, many times disobeyed you and disregarded your word and and trampled on your goodness, committed spiritual adultery against you, Lord, I, I thank you that though that is very true, There's a new covenant. It's not an old covenant. It's a new covenant. And every curse against me died in this new covenant. And Lord, you have extended grace, undeserved grace to me and and washed away my sin and forgiven me and made me brand new. So Lord, I thank you for that. I pray that you would keep cleansing me every day that I would come to, to know more and more how my mind how my will, how my emotions can belong to you, God, and represent you in righteousness and holiness, purity, Lord God. I thank you for that. Thank you that all the work is from you. Paul tells us, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so, Lord, we... We just, this morning, as we gather at your table, I'm going to ask our communion workers to come. As we gather at your table, Lord, we thank you that this is just one more opportunity for us to declare that our Lord, the righteous King of all the cosmos, was murdered so that we could live. And God, we know that that murdered man, that murdered Son of God, was raised to life eternal and now sits at the right hand of the Father where he makes intercession for us sinners. And we thank you for that, God. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. I want to invite you to come to the table and listen to me. If you're not a believer, please just stay in your seat. If you're not sure you're a believer, please stay in your seat. This is, this is a matter of us who have put our trust in Jesus to celebrate. And we're not trying to withhold something from you. It wouldn't mean a, a, a thing to you. It wouldn't mean a thing to you until your life has been transformed by the sacrifice of Jesus. Now, I want to say that because the Bible says that none of us should take it unworthily. And to take it outside of the covenant of God's grace is to take it unworthily. But it would be terrible crime of me to stop right there. Can I invite you into God's grace this morning? If if you're here this morning and the Lord is doing something in you and and you're, you're coming to realize, you may have come into this building thinking you were a follower of Christ. 
And the Holy Spirit, in the way that only he can, may have prompted your heart to realize, I am far from Jesus this morning. There is no condemnation here, because you know what? Every single person in this room was once far from Jesus and came to the same realization that you're coming to right now. So what we want to do, though, is we want to invite you to come to Jesus. You know, you may have put it off for a long time. You may try to convince yourself that you are when you know in your soul you're not. And I want to invite you to Jesus. It's a great thing. It's a wonderful thing. So if you would like to do that, there's what I want to invite you to do. Don't come up here for communion until you get, do this business with God. But what I want you to do is just right where you are. We don't, we're not going to lead you through some prayer meeting. Come up here and stand and sign some commitment to the church. None of that. What I want you to do is right where you're at. In the, in the, you know, we've got the lights down. You have all kinds of privacy. Right where you're at, bow your head right now and just say, Lord Jesus, I'm tired of doing it my way. I'm ready to surrender my life to you. Not because you're making some white-knuckle commitment to follow Jesus, but because you recognize that what he has for you is better than what you've amassed for yourself. And it's always going to be that way. And just put your trust in them. And then there's one last step. The second step would be this. When you do that, privately, quietly, come tell me after service. I want to celebrate with you. I want to give you some counsel on how to really make this work. How to really... Follow Jesus. Maybe you've, you've had what you consider to be false starts, but I want to invite you to really follow Jesus this morning. And I want to help you. The church wants to help you. But come tell me about that. For the rest of you, you may stand. And I, I, I don't want you to just file through the line. I always tell you that. But I want you to come and I want you to celebrate that Jesus, that God the Father, has given everything. And the promise of that is demonstrated in the broken body of his son on the cross. Come and enjoy the feasting on the Lord at the table.
seated where I don't belong I was carried to the table And swept away by his love And I don't see my brokenness anymore And when I'm seated at the table of the Lord I'm carried to the table The table of the of you at this point know Chris Halverson and um, I'm going to he, he asked me if he could share something uh, after the service and I told him he could and um, uh, I just want to say that I love this guy man. This guy has become a, a true brother in the Lord and about a month ago um, Chris and his uh, wife Hannah and I and uh, my wife Ginger were meeting at Market Street and right there on the patio at Market Street they gave their hearts to the Lord Jesus. And so Anyway, and they are they're following him, and uh, I'm really excited. In a few weeks, we're going to get to baptize them. But, uh, man, they have just uh, followed Jesus with all their heart. And, and um, Friday night, I guess it was, Chris uh, called me at the house, and, and, man, he just peppered me with all kinds of questions. You know why he had questions? Because he has dug himself into the Word, and he's just, he's just hungry to know what Jesus has to say. And, and so there's no way I'm not going to let this guy testify, but... Um, uh, I also, I, I need to brag about this. I got to uh, see him and Hannah get married in my backyard. I got to preside over that wedding with Casey, and um, it was awesome. So, um, so man, they are really just, God's doing a lot of cool things. So I wanted you guys, if you don't know Chris and Hannah, to get to know them. But I wanted to let him share whatever's on his heart this morning. Well, it kind of goes about everything that I've gone through in my life. And I realized I've been wrong. I've done wrong. But if it wasn't for my wrongs, I wouldn't have come to this church. I wouldn't have come to see all of you people and have your support behind me to be in the right way I want to be and the way that the Lord wants me to be. And it kind of goes to what you were saying about thou shalt not steal. If I hadn't done something I've done that was so terrible, I wouldn't be standing here today. I wouldn't be following Christ. I wouldn't have a wife. And then it goes to what you were saying, that the Lord will give and provide. Yeah. I have a need. I feel that that need is to come closer to Jesus. Is anybody here? Please raise your hand and see if y'all need to come closer to Jesus. Anybody? Everybody. And I feel like the Lord is working in me and my wife and everybody here. And I just wanted to announce that, that I'm tired and I want to do right and I want to do better and I think I am. I want to give more. I want to understand a little bit more and help me be wise in it. And that I give it all up to him and leave it all up to him for everybody, not just myself. And I'm thankful for all of you. And I want to thank the Lord for all of you. 
and for this church and for everybody in the world. Thank you, buddy.